Hey, uh, we are at the down to the short strokes in a in our final series on grace that we've been looking at uh, all year. And and this particular series on grace is called Grace in Your Neighbor. As I said the very first week, we're simply talking about how grace doesn't just influence us in here, but it's also designed to influence them out there uh, in the sense of your neighbor. And, and as you and I are carriers of God's grace, uh, he designed it so that we might hand it off to those around us. And you say, well, how do we do that? Well, we looked at the first week at the whole idea of the Good Samaritan and the fact that as you and I are kind and caring to those around us like the Good Samaritan was, then that's a way of handing off grace, showing grace to those around us. Then Daryl led us through this idea of serving other people and that as we serve, we hand off grace. And then the last two weeks, if you've been with us, you know we've been talking about sharing our faith verbally with those around us, the idea of being intentional to do so as well as clear when we do so is another way of sharing grace with those around us. And today and next week, we get to this idea of what I'm simply calling convictions. You're saying, what's that? Well, convictions is simply you and I having the courage and the love to share God's values with the culture around us. And it's a dicey topic. It's otherwise known in some circles as the whole idea of the culture wars. I don't like that phrase, as you'll hear more next week, but the whole idea of us just as Christians sharing God's values with the culture around us, as we're going to try to posit today, is a good thing. And I just got to let you know a couple things as we, even before we pray and enter into our time today, and that's that I do enter into this week and next week with a little bit of fear and trepidation, which I don't usually do. People ask me, are you afraid when you speak? I'm like, gosh, I've been doing it 20 years. No, not really. Uh, I'm afraid of many of you individually, but not when I'm in front of all of you as a group. And so I, I, I really don't get afraid at that. But sometimes when we look at a topic like this, that let's just face it, is, is very highly charged on an emotional level, because the things that we're going to talk about, these hot buttons in culture, I, 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 I get a little bit fearful sometimes when we talk about them, because I know the reprisals that tend to come my way whenever we broach the subject uh, of just the things that we're going to talk about today, and whether you and I should even speak morally into the culture around us. But I believe, and you'll see this today, that God wants us to, and so talk about this we will, and talk about this I think God wants us to. And so what we're going to do is make this a two-parter. For those of you who follow on the outline that's in your bulletin, you'll see that we have three points. I decided Thursday that there was no way we could cover all three, so I sent off a quick email to, to Troy and the Creative Arts people. I said, we're extending this into next week, and we're going to slow down. We're going to take our time on this which, you know, for those of you who are really high-control people and have to fill in all the blanks, this is not going to be your day. But you'll get over it, and you'll have a little mild anxiety until next week and we finish it, but that's okay. Uh, this is a good thing for us to slow down and talk about this very, very important issue of God's values and our culture here in America. And, and if ever you have reserved judgment until the end of a discussion, I beg you to do that with this. Please. I mean, you'll see today, there is something in today's message that will offend everyone. I promise you. And so where you sit right now, you're going to say amen a couple of times, and other times you're going to go, ooh, ooh. And you might even get a little red in the face. That's all right. I beg you just to work with me this week and into next. And by the time we get to the end of next week, if I don't miss my guess, as we put the kind of a ribbon on this whole package, I think you're going to be okay. Isaiah chapter 1, the Lord says, come, let us reason together. Don't you love that about God? Come, let us reason together. And that's what we're here to do this week and next. And I think, I think you're going to like it. So uh, to get you thinking, to get you angry already, I want you to look up here on the screen. And uh, we're going to do a little video bump. And then I'm going to come back. We're going to pray and dive right in. But this will get you thinking about the topic before us today.
Father God, you know that uh, I'm not thrilled about the term culture wars. As we're going to see as we go on, I'd like to think of us more as freedom fighters than anything else. And yet, Father, uh, you have called us, as we're going to see today, to be men and women of integrity who have enough love for the culture around us to not be afraid to speak truth to them. Uh, Lord, we do it all the time with our children where we raise them in homes where uh, we speak what we believe is truth to them because we want to raise them right and help them be uh, socially responsible, well-adjusted kids who are adults in our culture. And so, God, I pray that as we now transfer that kind of thinking in a broader way to all of culture, I pray, God, that you might give us wisdom. Lord, more than anything, help us to be biblical and to, to revere and honor what your word says, says as we open up your book now. And, God, more than anything, bring unity to hear us here at Scottsdale Bible Church so that we might please you by all being on the same page with what you have said. So would you do that among us, we pray. We pray it in Christ's name. Amen. So here is a good starting place. Here is one thing that we all know for sure and that I think we can all agree upon, and that is that culture has changed dramatically in the last five or six generations. Can you give me a head nod on that one? Like, you don't have to argue that one. Culture, as you and I know it, has changed dramatically, say, since the days of the Great Depression and the idea of silent movies. In fact, I had some fun this week when I was preparing for our time together. I found that Hallmark, Hallmark Greeting Cards, actually has a website in which they show the 80-year history of Hallmark Greeting Cards. And as I looked through those, and I'm going to walk you through some right now, it just floored me at how it reveals the changes that have occurred in our culture over the last 80 years. So give me a click here, guys. Here's the first one. This is from the 1930s. Uh, It's a Daffy Dean greeting card for somebody's birthday. Daffy Dean was a great baseball player. And it says, Daffy Dean says so and I say so, so you sure ought to have a happy birthday. Just a very benign, innocent greeting card. And then for those of you who have no idea who Daffy Dean is, give me another click here. This is, you guys know who this is? Shirley Temple, all right? I mean, come on. Nobody in the 5 o'clock service will know this, but you guys do. Shirley Temple, the 1930s. And, and again, it's, it, it's a simple greeting or Merry Christmas card. It says, Merry Christmas to a dear little granddaughter. That was the 1930s. And then we entered into the 1940s, and I, I like this one out of all the ones I had to choose. This one says, Praise the Lord and pass the ammunition. You never got that one during Vietnam, but during World War II, you'd get a greeting card like that. That was kind of the mood of culture back then. And then probably most revealing for our purposes this morning, when you get into the 1950s, I found this greeting card. Now, now, Now follow this. It says, you're holding up in great shape. Congratulations. It's a birthday card. And for those of you who don't know, those are girdles. Now, some of you are saying, what's a girdle? A a girdle was what your grandmother, or maybe your mother, or maybe you, wore as women's underwear back then in that culture. kind of gave shape to your body as you got older, and it helped hold things up that were sagging and what have you. And so what you need to know is that this was about as risque as it got in the 1950s. I mean, this was an edgy birthday card in the 1950s. And then we entered into the 1960s. And as all of us know, the 1960s were all about heartthrobs and hippies. So you got that card there on the left. It says, Happy Valentine's Day to someone as exciting, virile, and handsome as Cary Grant and Rock Hudson. So that's kind of the, the, the heartthrob era of the 60s. But then you also have the hippies. So I love this card. You can't read it, but I'll read it for you. It says, We wanted to lay a Christmas gift on you, man. But with us, it's Old Mother Hubbardsville meaning I have no money, I'm a hippie, because hippies were broke. And and so that was the 1960s. And then all of that led to the 1970s, which sociologists agree were our days of coming out, as the 70s were all about sex, self, and disco. Some of you remember it. Sex, self, and disco. So isn't this an interesting card there on the left with that gal? It says, I didn't mind not watching the drive-in movie on our last date. Can you imagine that card in the 1930s? Can you imagine that card transported to any other decade, even in the 1950s, uh, in in, in our culture? It wouldn't have been. And then you got the disco card there just for fun. 
And then in the 1980s and the 1990s, things started to heat up culturally as well. Some of you remember the whole issue of Valley Girls. Remember that? I mean, it even hit us out in Cleveland where I was at at that time. Like, you know, like it's no big di- biggie, like, you know, nothing awesome. I mean, I just want to like say hello totally for sure. That was the Valley Girl movement. And then in the 1990s, it became very vogue to diss evangelical Christians. Some of you remember that. SNL, Saturday Night Live, did that, quite frankly, funny church lady thing where they just dissed all the Christians and traditional church and all of that. So you got this greeting card with Dana Carvey on the front there that says, well, we're very proud of ourselves with our firm body and our lack of wrinkles, aren't we? And it's the whole church lady thing. And then in this last decade, as it all came to a head, you had cards like this. Look at the one there on your left. It says, the end of Sex and the City, what's the big deal? Sex and the City stopped airing its new episodes, I guess, halfway through our last decade. And uh, they had greeting cards to, to talk about that. And then just this last year in 2010, the whole Twilight saga, this greeting card, something smells really good around here, showing the cast from the movie Twilight and uh, some of you going, what's Twilight? You guys got to get with it. Twilight is the whole vampire movement and all of this. And so uh, just about a month ago, I was actually watching this movie. And my son comes in and goes, Dad, why are you watching Twilight? And I said, one, I'm bored. It was on. It's USA, you know, whatever it is. And, and I said, plus the kids are all into this, and I need to be up on that. And he looked at me. He said, Dad, 14-year-old girls are into this. He said, so if you want to be a 14-year-old girl, then watch Twilight. And I said, just go away. And, uh, but, but, but that's where our culture is today. I mean, folks, there's no arguing this. Everything has changed. I mean, every aspect of culture has changed in the last 80 years in life as we know it, our parents know it, and our grandparents know it. There's no arguing that. And, and let's be fair. Some of the changes have been good, and some of the changes have been not so good. I mean, you don't want to diss all the changes in the last 80 years because here's a list of some of the good things over the last 80 years. We defeated fascism and communism. We eradicated certain diseases. We've extended life expectancy. We have streamlined communication and world travel. And yet, at the same time, we've seen a moral and spiritual decay that has occurred in our country and everything from MTV to the relevant cultural statistics bears this out. So as technologically, we've gone gone uphill morally and spiritually at the same time they've intersected, our country has gone downhill. And that's pretty clear. I think one of the most revealing things was a study that was done in 1998 by two well-respected researchers, Alexander Volokh and Lisa Snell, in which they revealed that the biggest behavioral problems reported by public school teachers in America in 1940 were as follows. Talking out of turn, chewing gum, making noise, running in the halls, cutting in line, violating dress code, and littering. Those are the seven main behavioral problems listed by school teachers in the 1940s. And yet by 1990, this list had changed. By 1990, the top seven behavioral problems reported by public school teachers were drug abuse, alcohol abuse, pregnancy, suicide, rape, robbery, and assaults. I mean, folks, just look at that list on the screen behind me. In less than three generations, a mere 50 years, culture has changed so dramatically that our school teachers in the public school system have that diverse of a list when it comes to the problems, the seven top problems that they deal with. And it makes sense. I mean, our culture has gone from leave it to beaver to the Simpsons. Our culture has gone from the 1950s, the biggest problem being your kid crashing the family Buick, to now the biggest threat being that your kid might crash on drugs. Our culture has gone from James Dean and Elvis to Sex in the City and VH1 reality shows. There's no arguing that culture has changed, and yet on a moral and spiritual level, it has by and large changed in such a way that most of our great-grandparents would blush at best. They'd be cringing at worst. And so the question becomes for you and I, once we get this, is what are well-informed and highly devoted Christ followers to do? That's the only question I want to ask this week and next week. 
that what role do you think God would want you and me to play, if anything, in dealing with a culture and a world that is changing and is still changing as it was once founded upon some fairly moral principles in our country and now is becoming more decadent with each changing generation? Or to fit our series that we're in right now, let's place this in the realm of grace, how and in what ways would God want you and me to pass on grace to a culture that needs to be nudged in a different direction morally and spiritually? Three things I want to suggest to you today and next week. Three things that come right from the Bible, and that as you're going to see, build one upon the other, that when added up, I believe give us clear direction uh, as to the what's and how's of responding to a runaway culture. And, And here's our starting place. It's point one this morning. It's the only thing that we're going to talk about today, but it's going to be new for some of you and a challenge for many of us, and it's simply this, that God has declared universal values to our world, and he desires all people to follow them. Did you know that? Some of you didn't, but it's true. God, in his word, has declared universal values to our world, and he desires anybody created in his image, which means all human beings, to follow them. And some of you are saying, what? Is that really true? It is. If you brought a Bible with you, I want you to turn to 1 Timothy chapter 1, verses 8 through 10. 1 Timothy 1, verses 8 through 10. This is going to be a great theology lesson for some of us here today that can, be, can change our paradigm of how we view the world around us. If you didn't bring a Bible, there's one in the pew rack in front of you. I'll also put the scripture up here on the screen. Follow along as I read verses 8 through 10 of 1 Timothy 1. It says, Now we know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully. Understanding this, that the law is not laid down for the just, but for the lawless and lawless and disobedient, for the ungodly and sinners, for the unholy and profane, for those who strike their fathers and mothers, for murderers, sexually immoral, men who practice homosexuality, enslavers, liars, perjurers, and whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine. And some of you are saying, whoa, that is a really heavy scripture. And it is. And yet you and I need to make sense of this. We need to understand what it is saying to us if we're ever going to get our hearts and minds around this aspect, believe it or not, of grace. Now, in order to understand what this passage is saying here, it's important to understand that when the New Testament refers back to the Old Testament moral law, which is what it means by law here. It's not referring to like civil laws today. It's referring to the Old Testament moral law, the Ten Commandments, and all the other moral imperatives in the Old Testament. Whenever the New Testament does that, it does so for three primary purposes. Now dial into this. The first purpose is that it's telling us that the Old Testament law, God's perfect values declared in the Old Testament, was given to convict of sin. That's not what this passage is telling us, but if you read Romans 1 through 5 portions of the book of Galatians, you'll see that the law was given so that you and I, in trying to live God's law, would realize how imperfect we are, how we can't live it to all of its perfection, and so it convicts us of our fallenness, of our humanity, of our sin, and we say, I need Christ. We say, I need forgiveness because I can't do this on my own. That's the first purpose of the Old Testament law as described by the New Testament. But then interestingly, secondly, the New Testament further tells us that God's law as found in the Old Testament is also to be used to guide believers, those who have already come to Christ, in their following of God. And it works this way. We look at God's declared moral values, even in the Old Testament, and we use them as our values in making choices and decisions now as followers of Jesus Christ. So you have lots of values and and moral imperatives that come out of the Old Testament that we're not going to get to today, but they're there. And you and I need to know them and use them as followers of Jesus and how we make decisions and following Christ even today. It guides believers. But then, most fascinating, the New Testament tells us, thirdly, that God's moral law is also designed to speak truth and values to the culture around us of what God wants for any and all people who have been created in His image, whether they have come to believe in Him or not. And it's this third usage here that 1 Timothy is getting at. And so notice, as we drill down in this passage, what it is saying here. This is so important. It's telling us, firstly, that the law is good. Do you see that there? The law is good. That only makes sense. 
The law is God's holy and perfect standard. He has communicated in, in history through the Ten Commandments and through other moral imperatives as found in the Pentateuch. It reflects his character. The law is obviously good. And yet not stopping there, this passage further tells us that the law is not just given for those who are doing well morally in their lives. That'd be like giving medicine to a healthy person. No, it makes it clear that the law is for the lawless and the disobedient, for the ungodly and sinners, for the unholy and profane. And then it lists some of the not-so-good, hurtful things that people like this do. It lists family sin and sexual sin and lying and bearing false witness. And we know from the context of this passage, and don't miss this, that it has to be talking about unbelievers there. I mean, Paul the Apostle never describes believers as the lawless and disobedient, as ungodly and sinners, as unholy and profane. He never describes the church that way. Even in Corinth, where he was ticked at them for all of their sin, he doesn't use those words to describe them, or at least not that all those words added together. And so we know, and almost all commentators agree, that he's talking about culture at large here. And when you get that, don't miss, he's telling us that one of the purposes of God's values, as declared in his word, in this case the Old Testament moral law, is to speak truth into a runaway culture that is destroying itself as Rome was from the inside out. And so whether it was Rome or Greece in Paul's day when this was written, or France in the 18th century, or America in the 20th century, Christians always have an opportunity, no, he's saying we have an obligation, to graciously speak truth to the culture around them, truth as it comes to us in God's Word, both in the Old Testament moral imperatives as well as the New. And just so you don't think I'm making this interpretation up, this is the general agreed-upon interpretation of what Paul is saying here in 1 Timothy. In fact, look at what John Calvin, the great Reformation leader, said 500 years ago in light of this exact same passage. Look up here on the screen. He says, People have need of a bridle to restrain them from slackening the reins on the lust of the flesh to fall clean away from all pursuit of unrighteousness. It's kind of old language, but what's he saying there? He's saying all people have a need of God's declared values, even if they haven't come home yet through faith in Christ. If for no other reason than to keep them going off the deep end when it comes to doing things that we all know are bad for them. He's saying the law has a purpose. It convicts of sin. It guides believers. But it also restrains culture in such a way that when you and I share it with those around us, it acts as a bridle guiding people in their lives for their and culture's good. And the trick that I believe here, folks, is to recognize what each culture in each day and age needs to hear and what they need to respond to in order to not go off the deep end, right? <laughs> I mean, the reality is you're not going to get all of Scottsdale or all of Phoenix or any culture, per se, that's not interested in biblical things to take a bunch of seminary courses on the law. And so, you know, you're not going to be able to do that. But the reality is, is that what I think you and I need to do is discern exactly what issues our culture is percolating about right now, and then if God's Word speaks into them, we help speak into it to those around us to help nudge and shape culture for the good. We're carriers of His grace, not just in the form of kindness, but in the form of truth, in the form of moral imperatives. And God has said, by all means, share that with those around you. And what you need to know is that for 2,000 years, Christians have been doing this to, to much benefit to the world. So if you were a missionary, for instance, back in the 19th century, and you were in Africa, you know one of the things that you would share with African culture back in the 19th century? You'd say, God values all life, and human sacrifices are not a good thing. I mean, even before you try to convert an entire tribe to Jesus, you'd say, you know what? I don't think God wants you sacrificing your children to an unknown sun god. That's not a good thing for you guys to be doing. God's Word has some values in it that you might want to heed as you're wrestling with the gospel and other things. If you're in the Middle East in the 20th century, now into the 21st, I think it's pretty clear that certain countries in the Middle East need to hear about religious freedom and how they treat women and how God wants us to treat women. If you're in China today, I'm telling you, it's clear that they could use a course on how to do family planning without shunning baby girls. If you're in Amsterdam today, it's obviously clear that they could use a course on sexual immorality 
how not to lift up prostitution and pornography as legitimate and life-giving options to one's life. You get the picture. All over the world, throughout all cultures, we speak lovingly and truthfully into the culture with God's values, and in so doing, we help them by giving them grace that they need to function properly. I love how Calvin says it. They need a bridle to pull the reins in on their flesh, and in part, God's values act as that bridle. Now, let's get on to the heart of it all then for our American, our current American culture. And the issue becomes that when you and I understand this aspect of sharing God's grace with our neighbor, which, as we have seen, also includes sharing his values with them, what are some of the things that our current American culture could use to hear? Dare we list some of them right now? What are some of the things that our culture today is confused about, that has kind of gotten off track about, that God's Word speaks clearly, if not pointedly, into that we could put on our list. Let me just suggest to you seven things. And this is where I'm going to list seven things in which there's something to offend everyone. You ready for this? First one is sanctity of life. Top of the list. It's a no-brainer. God values all life, even the life of the not yet born. How about the holiness of marriage? The fact that God has designed marriage to be monogamous, heterosexual, And he adds a holy aspect to it, meaning set apart, you're to do it that way. How about religious liberty? Some of you didn't know that's in the Bible, but it's all over the place. The fact that God wants any and all to freely choose him or not choose him, as most theologians point out, that any culture set up should offer freedom when it comes to that level, not forcing anybody to believe or not believe. This one's going to throw some of you creation care. The fact that theologians have been talking for years about the fact that God wants us to have dominion on this earth, that's Genesis 1 and 2, but in having dominion and utilizing this earth, we're also to be good stewards of his creation, not abusing the dominion that we have. They call it creation care. Certainly God will want us to speak sexual values into our runaway culture. He wants us to live pure lives that refuse to objectify others for their own pleasures which is what pornography and prostitution do. They objectify the opposite sex for one's own pleasure. And God says that's not the way it works. Certainly we need to add caring for the poor and needy to our list. There's literally thousands of passages, 2,000 of them to be exact, just about, that talk about caring for the poor and needy and even how to do so. And I know this final one is a hot button, as if the others aren't, but did you know the Bible talks about strangers in the land? People that are not a part or citizens of your land when they come into your land. And God's word says that we need to strike a balance between protecting our borders but also being hospitable to those who come to us in need. And again, you could hear a pin drop right now in this place as soon as Jamie broached that subject. But the reality is is that God's word talks about that. Look at that list, folks. There's equal opportunity offense in that list just right there. And some of those issues are really easy to discern what God's Word says about them, and I'll grant you some of them are hard. I mean, there is debate on some of those things going on right now within well-meaning, smart Christians on exactly what God's Word says about those issues. And my point is not to enter into the debate today. My point is simply this. God's Word does talk about those issues. They are moral issues. They're issues he cares about because they made it into his word. And you and I should not be afraid to enter into the fray. Not at all. He wants us to show grace to those around us. And one of the ways that we show grace is through not being afraid to give culture what it needs when it comes to wading through some of these difficult, albeit very important, issues. And yet here's the response that we most often get whenever we engage in this kind of exercise. And I've been doing this for 21 years now as a pastor, and here's the, I can't tell you how many times I've heard somebody respond just like this right when we get to this point. They say, well, here you go again, Jamie. Just another intolerant and judgmental Christian getting all involved in politics and pushing his morality on other people. That's what I hear. And in other words, they say, why can't you just focus on the gospel and spiritual things? Why can't you just avoid all these political and highly charged moral issues and do your job? And though in one sense... We've already answered this question with our look at 1 Timothy 1 and God's call to help those around us understand his values as outlined in his word. I do want to respond very pointedly 
to this often heard challenge which a couple, with a couple of more thoughts, and we're going to go to the communion table. And to do this, I want to break down that often heard retort that I hear from people into two parts. And I want to answer the isn't this just politics issue that I hear people say so often. And then I want to address isn't this just pushing our morality on other people issue. I want to take both those separately. So first, isn't all this simply politics that should be avoided by pastors and church people? And the simple answer to that question is no, it isn't. But a more satisfactory answer might be to see it this way. And that is when you think about the list of the things that I just put up there on the screen, everything from sanctity of life to the needs of the poor to sexual values to marriage to creation care to religious liberty, even to strangers in our land, these are all issues, as we know, that God's Word talks about. And by the way, did you know that it goes back thousands of years in talking about them? And it's only recently that these moral issues that God cares about have been hijacked by our current American culture and made into political issues. And so contrary to what some people think, these are not political issues that Christians are somehow weaseling their way into and making moral issues. It's the opposite. These are actually moral issues that have been cur currently politicized by our culture. Please see it that way. And the mere fact that culture has taken God's moral issues and made them political issues does not detract from the moral fabric of them at all. They're still moral issues that he cares deeply about. And Christians for thousands of years now have spoken lovingly and candidly into these issues in the culture around them. Sometimes with evident success, other times with not success, but they spoke nonetheless. And so isn't it interesting? Let me give you a couple of examples here that might help you understand this. Isn't it interesting that in the Old Testament, you have Daniel, this young godly Jewish leader who was taken into exile by secular Babylon in the 6th century B.C., and we find him yet speaking truthfully and lovingly to the secular king Nebuchadnezzar in light of Nebuchadnezzar's secular, very fleshly tendencies. Look at Daniel chapter 4, verse 27. I think you'll see what I mean. In talking to the king, he says this. He says, Therefore, o king, let my counsel be acceptable to you. Break off your sins by practicing righteousness and your iniquities by showing mercy to the oppressed that there may perhaps be a lengthening of your prosperity. <laughs> I love that passage. I, I mean, this guy's got guts. He, he's just a young guy, very godly, very focused on the Lord. He could have just sat in his castle and had quiet times the whole time. But he decided to enter into the fray. And did you catch it there? Speak into Nebuchadnezzar's life by, by basically saying, you know what, you're an awfully unrighteous guy. And, and your iniquities are really on the high end of the scale. And, and you know what, it might help you and it might help Babylon by, by, by you pulling back on your unrighteousness, showing some mercy to the poor and the oppressed, and God might even lengthen your prosperity. Well, what's Daniel doing there? He's speaking because he cares into Babylonian culture, and he's speaking God's values and his truth. And I know how some of you think. You're thinking because you know the Bible. You're going, well, Jamie, Daniel was asked to do that. I mean, Daniel was asked to speak into these issues, and, you know, he had this, this vision, and Nebuchadnezzar had the dream, and Daniel was interpreting the dream, and so, yeah, when we're asked, we'll do it, but what about when we're not asked? Good question. Let's look at John the Baptist. Let's go to Matthew chapter 14, verses 3 and 4. We see the same scenario with a different twist. It says, For Herod had seized John and bound him and put him in prison for the sake of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, because John had been saying to him, It's not lawful for you to have her. Folks, what a mess. Herod is sleeping with his brother's wife, taken right from the playbook of modern-day soap operas. And don't miss that John has the courage here to tell him that sleeping with his brother's wife is not quite up to God's standards, <laughs> even for a Roman king. And then, as we know, Herod gets all threatened by this, and his brother's wife, Herodias, gets all threatened and gets the king to put John in prison where he eventually will die. And yet, don't miss that in the midst of all of this drama, the simple thing that comes out of this is that you have John the Baptist. I mean, humble, Jesus must increase so I can decrease John the Baptist, not being afraid to speak values into the reigning king of the day, into the reigning secular culture of the day, 
in hopes that he might change. That even if he's digging his heels in, which Herod was, on Jewish faith, and Herod would do the same with Christian faith, John says, though it would be ideal if you became a Jew and then a Christian, the reality is, is that I still need to speak God's truth to you, his values. Why? Because you see, God has universal values. <laughs> he desires all creation to embrace, even if they've not yet come home in faith in Christ. He wants them to embrace it, embrace it because we're going to see in a second, it, it will go well with them. Isn't all this speaking into our culture with the values of God, just engaging in worldly politics? No, no, it's really not, folks. It's a way to show grace when done rightly. And we're going to talk about that more next week. When done with gentleness and respect, which are the words the Bible is going to use, when it's done that way, it's one of the more gracious things we can do to a culture around us that we care about. And this then leads very naturally to the second part of the question asked a few minutes ago, and that's, well, isn't all this value sharing just a way to push and force our values on others who haven't asked for it? In other words, aren't Christians just really being pushy here? Aren't we kind of raining on everybody's parade? Aren't we kind of the uninvited guests crashing the wedding? And there are actually two parts to this answer, what I call the biblical part and what I call the American part. And yet they're very different, but they, they, they come together well. So, so biblically speaking, let me answer that question by saying that though, as we're going to see next week, God wants us to always share his values with humility and love and gentleness. The reason, however, that God still wants us to share his values, whether asked or not, is because he knows that in honoring them and living them, they bring an inherent blessing to the one who does and even to the culture around them. And that's something you guys got to see here today because, in a sense, I, I used the analogy earlier, earlier of you loving your kids by giving them values that they might not want, but eventually they're going to thank you for them. It works the same with culture. You're saying, how's that work? How many of you know here today, let me see if you, Bible quiz time, how many of you know what the fifth commandment is? Anybody here know what the fifth commandment out of the Big Ten are? John, David, give the guy a golden star. Honor your father and mother. Right now I have three teenagers, so it's my favorite commandment out of all ten. Honor your father and mother. Show respect to them. Care for them. Nurture them. As they age, take care of them. Buy them nice cars. That's what we're teaching our kids. Things like that. You honor your father and mother as you go along in life. Now, that's found in Deuteronomy chapter 5 and Exodus chapter 20, and it's the fifth commandment. But look at what the New Testament adds in Ephesians chapter 6, verses 1 through 3, when it talks about this exact commandment. This is so cool. It says, children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. And then it lists the fifth commandment. Honor your father and mother. This is the first commandment with a promise. And then it lists the promise in verse 3. It says that it may go well with you and that you may live long in the land. Do you see? God is saying that for those who embrace his commandment, and I think this is universal, to honor your father and mother, there's an inherent blessing with it, that it may go well with you. And folks, I've thought about this one for, for years. I thought, well, what about families in which the parents were awful and abusive and they just did a terrible job? I, I mean, how do you honor them? What will you do? You, you certainly set boundaries so that abuse does not continue. Uh, but you still honor them and how you speak to them and how you, uh, how you think about them, how you feel about them. You, you work through the, the tunnel of chaos and you eventually get to the other end where you learn how to honor them even in not-so-ideal environments. And here's what I've learned is I've watched some very, very close friends of mine go through that tunnel of chaos, and that is that they get out at the other end and there is a blessing for them. They're better for it. People have learned to honor even bad parents somehow have a character that affects their marriage, that affects their friendship, that affects them as human beings. In other words, the scripture is right here. Honor your father and mother, and there's a blessing in it. Something happens deep inside your soul in which God does something in you, made in his image, by showing honor to somebody who brought you into this world. And I would simply point out that there are many commandments that carry a blessing like that. That there are many moral things in God's word that if we do, God says things are going to go a little bit better for you. Don't steal. Don't murder. Don't take other people's property. Treat them with respect. Love your neighbor as yourself. I mean, it's all over the places. And I think, I think it's all over the place. And I think it goes out saying, and I hope we all know this, that, that these aren't merit badges that will earn you a place in heaven. I mean, we're going to talk about that more next week. The only merit badge you and I can have 
to get a place in heaven, to have salvation, is Jesus Christ and his work on the cross for us. We're going to make that really clear next week. We're going to go to the table here in a minute. So this is not that. We're not saying sometimes works salvation here. We're simply saying that, that whether you're a Christian or not, the Bible says that there is a blessing in doing life God's way, in embracing his values, and that you and I should not be shy to share those with those around us. It's a way that we impart grace. And yet, if not convinced by that, the second part in answering this query of isn't this just pushing our values on those that don't want them is what I call the American part, and this one's really awesome, and that is that in a democracy, we're all invited to participate for the collective and common good. In other words, you and I live in a country today where it's so awesome, I don't know if many of you realize it, but we are asked to participate in the legislative, moral, spiritual, societal process of what makes our country our country. And what a blessing that is for Christians. I mean, if you or I were in China right now, I'm telling you, they would not be interested in our opinion on how to set up culture. If we were in the Middle East right now, most countries there are not interested in our opinion on how to set up culture. Only in America, well, not only, but other countries, 200 years ago, were we told that, that we want the collective common good to happen in our country and that by all means, Christians especially should speak up. I mean, many of our founders, as you guys know, were, were believers in God, at the very least theists, at the very most Christians who revered his word. And they encouraged Christians in the founding of our country to bring their Judeo-Christian values to bear on the process so that we might set up a good and godly nation. And so today, now that we're struggling with that, now that we're wrestling with that, I hope you know that our democracy still continues and it still exists. And you and I are encouraged Christian or not, to speak into the moral fabric of our life. That's the nation that we live in. And so I read all the time. I was reading a novel two nights ago. I, I love to read novels, Clancy and Grisham and all those guys. And I picked up Brian Haig's novel, Man in the Middle. It's been out for a while, but I, I've been waiting to get around to it. And in his intro to it, before he gets to the fiction part, he has this nonfiction introduction, and he said this. I thought this was great. He said, in a healthy, functioning democracy, citizens are supposed to care, they're supposed to participate, and they're supposed to raise their voices. And I think he's right. And so the question for you and I today is that when we understand that God wants us to share his values with those around us, do we care? Do we participate? Do we ever raise our voices? And again, I know what the pushback is on this. I've heard it for years. People have said, well, yeah, you shouldn't legislate morality. So Christians ought to just pipe down. And you know what the answer to that one is? Who says you shouldn't legislate morality? I mean, honestly, folks, think about the logic of that statement. You shouldn't legislate morality. If that's true, then we shouldn't legislate laws on murder. We shouldn't legislate laws on rape. We shouldn't legislate laws on religious freedom. Because those are all moral issues. And yet nobody in their right mind would say we shouldn't legislate that kind of morality. So, ah, here's the issue. The issue is not whether we legislate morality or not. The issue is which morality are you going to legislate? That's the issue. And here's the cool thing. I don't say this arrogantly. I say this with a lot of humility. But the issue is then who in culture, in our current American culture, are the carriers of God's universally given, wonderful, life-giving, divine morality. You and I are. And so if you and I are silent, if you and I don't vote, if you and I get afraid of all these issues because we know they tend to be a bit contentious, then say goodbye to the country you love. Say goodbye to the freedoms that you have. I had a guy come up to me after the last service. He could barely speak. He was just in tears. It's a guy about my age. He's fought in, a little bit older than me. He fought in Vietnam. He said, I spent six years in Vietnam. And he said, when I fought in Vietnam, he said, every day, because I was a Christian then, he said, I, I knew that I was fighting for this country that I love. And I knew I was defending the freedoms and the liberties that we have. And he could barely speak. He said, what you said today is so right on. Because he said, I, I live that every day. And, and see, many of us don't because we're not involved in the armed services or what have you. We live in the bath of freedom. But don't ever take that bath for granted. Don't ever take for granted the water that we swim in because we got to keep it clean. And part of the way that you and I keep it clean is not being afraid to, to provide the soap of God's morality to bear on the process. 
And so here's where we've come from today. This week, as we've been opening this discussion on conviction, has simply been about sharing God's values with the culture around us. And we've simply seen two introductory things. This hasn't been complicated. And that is that God has values, and He wants our world to know them and embrace them for their own good. Next week, we're going to talk about how we should posture ourselves before culture in such a way that is winsome and godly. And I beg you to return, because Christians don't always do a very good job at that. We're going to talk about how we should share God's values in such a way that we don't become holier than thou or judgmental or even worse, eclipse the gospel message itself, which we've been known to do. We're going to talk about those things. But this week, I want you to pause and to ponder. I want you to stop before God. I want you to park in front of this idea that he has values, that they're for our good, and that you and I are wonderful life-giving carriers of the grace that he wants us to pass on. We're going to move to the table right now, so would you bow with me as the service comes forward? Would you bow with me, and let's commit this time to the Lord. Father God, I thank you for the truth that you give us in your word. As you know, Lord, I say so often, I would be lost up here if it wasn't for your already declared word and truth to us. And Father, I pray that as we've dealt with what has today become a rather difficult issue, for Christians of old this wasn't difficult, but it is for us now, I pray, God, that you might add some clarity to our minds and hearts and some courage to us as we look at the world around us. God, i got to believe that every one of us here cares about the culture that we have. We do. Some of us are discouraged. Some of us get down when we see the changes that have come. But, God, we care deeply nonetheless. And so I pray that as we pause and reflect on these things, that, God, you might individually speak to us as, you would, as to what you would have us do. Help us not to be afraid. God, to share your truth lovingly and graciously with those in our midst. God, I pray as we go to this table now that, God, we would understand that the only reason we can have a discussion like we're having right now is because Jesus Christ is the one who has paved the way for us to know you in a personal way. And so, God, I pray that as we celebrate the core of our faith right now, the bread and the juice, as we hold these elements, as we then partake together, as we worship you in song, that, God, you might slow and calm our hearts before you, prepare us for the week ahead, that we might go from here in a few minutes knowing that the core of our faith is not about us, it's about Jesus and what he has done for us. So meet us at this table, we pray. We look to you now in Christ's name. Amen. Crown you now 
So on the night that Jesus was betrayed, he took the bread that they were eating and he broke it. He said, this is my body given for you. And whenever you eat, remember me. In the same way Jesus took the cup that they were drinking, he said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood, shed for the forgiveness, the remission of your sins, and whenever you drink, remember me. Lord, what a glorious way to end our time together by remembering you and all that you have done for us, that has secured for us eternal life and made any joy, peace, purpose, meaning that we have this side of heaven, a reality. So God, I pray as we go from this place now that we might go in full assurance of faith having engaged in this time, knowing that it's your blood, the gift of your Son, that we lean upon for any hope that we have. May that be very real to us this week. God, protect us till we meet again. May we not be afraid to pass on grace to those around us. We thank you for the opportunity to do so. We pray this in Jesus' holy and his very, very precious name. And the whole church says together, amen. God bless you guys. We'll see you next week.